Hello. Thank you for downloading this sermon by Pastor Casey Helenchek. Casey is a missionary pastor with Village Missions. Currently, Casey and his wife Hope and their six children serve the Bangor Community Church and the surrounding area of Bangor, California. Village Missions exists to glorify Jesus Christ by developing spiritually vital community churches in rural North America. We now invite you to open your Bibles and journey with us. All right. Uh, Well, if you would, please grab your Bibles with me. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Uh, Just want to say a quick thank you to uh, the church as a whole uh, and to any and all individuals involved with it. Um, We got our air conditioning replaced and working this week, and it is such a blessing. We are eternally and and just completely grateful and in everybody's debt. So thank you. for the prayers, for the for the donations, for everything that went into that. So, all right. Uh, so we are in Luke twenty-two this morning, and if we were watching this gospel, if this was a movie, this would be that brief, calm interlude right before the action and the drama ramps up, leading to the climax. Um, there's that that little down period, and you know everybody thinks everything's whatever, and then all of a sudden ramp up to the, the, the action-packed end. This is that, that calm before the storm is what we're looking at this morning. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. They've been there since uh, Jesus made his triumphal entry in Luke 19. Uh, and so the previous two and a half chapters take, plor- take place over the course of about a half a week. Um, you know, tradition says from Thursday or from Sunday to to Wednesday is when what we've been looking at takes place. And the Passover, which is what this week's passage will be setting up, um, the Passover takes place on Thursday. And so a lot is going to take place over the course of the next 24 to 36 hours in, in real time in this. That time leading up to the Passover and that that time coming right out of the Passover. Uh, Today's passage lays the groundwork for all of it. It's getting all the pieces and all the characters into place, uh, ready to play their part, to show that that God knows what he's doing and that he has it all planned. Uh, None of those next 24 hours that that take place are going to come as a surprise uh, to, to God or to Jesus. None of those are going to be them reacting to what is happening. Uh, and so we'll, we'll get back into that later on um, in the sermon. But we'll go ahead. We'll jump into this morning's text. Luke chapter 22, verse 1 through 13. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. I encourage you, grab your preferred translation. Follow along as we read the word of God. So Luke 22, 1 through 13. The Holy Spirit inspires Luke to record the following. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray, him, to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So may God bless the reading of his holy word. So I figured I would start with a, just a review, kind of a, a touch base on why everyone is in Jerusalem to begin with. The custom of the day was for the Jewish people to go to Jerusalem uh, for the festival of unleavened bread. Uh, the Passover was the first day of that festival. Uh, and so uh, Jewish people from all over Israel and from all over the known world, honestly, at that point, were, were coming to Jerusalem. So they went, they would go to the temple, they would have their Passover lambs sacrificed in the temple where sacrifices were supposed to take place. Uh, some estimate that the population of Jerusalem would, during that week, temporarily swell to over 2 million people in the city that week. Uh, Passover, in terms of cultural importance and in, on the impact of the spiritual lives of the Jewish people, was kind of like combining Christmas and Easter for us today. Uh, it was the celebration of God's saving providence. It was uh, what a lot of the year was built around. Uh, it was uh, a, a major, major thing. God in, in, in Exodus uh, was unleashing the 10 plagues on Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. The last one was the death of all firstborn males. In order to save his people, God told uh, Moses to tell the Israelites, sacrifice a lamb without blemish, wipe the blood over the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over that home. Long story short, God spared the faithful Israelites and told them to celebrate and remember this every year thereafter. There was a specific meal involved. Uh, there was the sacrifice and the eating of the unblemished lamb. There was the teaching the children in order that they would remember. Some of those details I had Frank read this morning. Um, all of it was just, I, I can't understate how important that day was to the Jewish people. Still is today to, to observe, well, even non-observant Jewish people. Is, but especially to observant Jew, Jewish people, it's, it's one of the biggest days of the year. That day was now upon them, uh, as we read through Luke. And we see that the, the chief priests, these were the, the leaders of the temple. These were the, the Jewish religious leaders who had at least some amount of political power. They were the, the only ones that had any political power. They were seething with hatred against Jesus at this point. They were looking for the right opportunity to take him out. And it had to be the right opportunity because they feared the people. Uh, they, they would be the ones, as one commentator put it, to lead the final opposition against Jesus. Now, it's obvious why the religious leaders didn't like Jesus, and they hadn't for years. You see from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, uh, the different things that he teaches, the different things that he does that breaks tradition, the different, just all of these things, the, the religious leaders had, had had it in for Jesus for three years at this point. So why was it now coming to a pinnacle, coming to a crux, 
here and now in Jerusalem at the Passover. Well, Philip Reichen writes this. He says, Their hatred grew to its most furious intensity during the last week of Jesus' life. By then, it was not just the party of the Pharisees who wanted to get rid of him. It was the whole leadership of the temple in Jerusalem, the priests, the scribes, and the elders. These men hated Jesus. They hated him for his condemnations of their hypocrisy and for claiming that he was the son of God. They hated him. They hated seeing him teach in the temple. They hated how much influence he had on the people, especially during Passover, when so many people were there to influence. In their hatred, they challenged his authority. They tried to get their hands on him. They sent spies to trap him. In a word, they were seeking to destroy him. And maybe this explains why Jesus left the city every day before nightfall, that it was too dangerous for him to be in Jerusalem after dark. It had been building for three years, and it was finally at that point where the religious leaders, we have to do something. We can't let this continue. We have to take him out. We have to destroy him. But we can't do it just any way. They wanted to get a hold of him and have him killed, but they had to be smart about it. The people wouldn't have stood for it, for sure. He was too popular among the people. They didn't know what the people would do, but it would be bad for the religious leaders, bar none. And so the chief priests were looking for the right opportunity, trying to figure out the right plan. How can we make this happen? That's that's one of the groups of characters that is being put into, into place. The next one in this drama that we see is Judas Iscariot. He was a close friend of Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was the treasurer of theirs. He was the one that hold the, the money bag, that, that gave the money out, that, that collected the money, that did all of that. When Mary poured perfume on the feet of Jesus, G- Judas is the one that threw a fit, saying the money that that perfume sold for could have been used to help the poor. Although we see in John twelve six, it says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He looked good on the outside. He was throwing the right moral fit, even though he had other plans. One commentator reminds us of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 3, uh, and, and specifically to show that when the scripture says that Satan entered into Judas, it's not referring to possession, but it's referring to a very strong influence that, that the enemy had over them. Uh, in, Jesus, in Judas's case, uh, some may want to excuse Judas from the guilt of his actions, but scripture leaves no opportunity. He was a willing participant. He was out there and Satan was able to use his already there intentions to guide him to what they both wanted to happen. So Judas went out and he sought out the chief priests. And I picture one of those scenes where the, the chief priests are sitting around in a circle brainstorming looking, you know, okay, we need to figure this out. Everybody, do your Winnie the Pooh. Think, think, think. Gotta figure this out. I picture somebody saying, I know, we need a guy on the inside. Well, how are we going to do that? They're all loyal to him. Judas knocks at the door. Hi, guys, I'm an answer to your prayers. 
Now, that's a lighthearted take, obviously. This is not a lighthearted situation. But that's how I imagine it in making it real within, within me. This is a real event. These are real people. This was real betrayal. And it's, it's important for us to recognize that. The, this, is a, this is not a story. This is not uh, a myth or a fable or an allegory or a parable. This is real life that took place. And so when I say those, the, that in a lighthearted way, it's not to make light of the situation. It's how I keep it real in my mind and my thoughts. Either way, Judas, Judas seeks out the chief priests. They figure out a plan. They also figured out what the price of that betrayal and that plan will be. Again, we see that the chief priests didn't have to, to seek out Judas. They didn't have to pressure or wear down or convince him to do any of this. Judas sought them out. And so they agree on a price and it's, it's staggering how ordinary a temptation it was that allowed and caused Judas to betray Jesus. There's a little bit of money, 30 pieces of silver. It's not a pocket change. I'm not saying it's nothing. But to betray this guy that was so close to him, who was God in the flesh, who he had spent three close years with, the temptation of just a little bit of money caused him to go out and to to make this plan to, to betray him. And it makes me see just how much of Judas there is in each and every one of us every time we sin. Often it's, it's simple, plain, seemingly ordinary temptations that start that ball rolling and cause the sin to, to occur, cause us to sin. Let me not lighten the words there. It's we are sinning. It is us that sins. These temptations come into us. A lot of times the very beginning of that is something so simple and little that we can't imagine that it would be that, that ball rolling downhill to, you know, to, to, to come to that. It's not usually that I all of a sudden get a, a sudden temptation to murder someone. It's not uh, that I suddenly get a temptation, you know what, I'm going to go out and cheat on my wife. Those are not the temptations. The end results uh, of, of the sin itself is often bigger than the temptation that leads us into it. Uh, and that's what we see here with, with Judas. The temptation was, what, I don't know exactly what was going through his mind, but the temptation was 30 pieces of silver. And I give you Jesus, and Jesus gets killed, hung on the cross. Judas, Judas, Judas we'll get to that later when we talk about him. He shows some remorse, sort of. We'll get into that. But his temptation was that little bit of money, and the end result was Jesus hanging on the cross. A chain of events, a chain of growing temptations, just like in our lives. I want to go, I, I don't even have a train in my mind to, to share with you guys, but just that, that starts with that little temptation. With Judas, that, that love of money that leads him to that point where that sin takes place and the consequences are huge. And we also can't look, can't tell by looking at someone whether they're genuinely regenerated and saved or not. Somebody uh, was looking at Judas in that situation. They would have seen he's again, he's one of the 12. 
He's one of Jesus' closest friends. He even has a high position in that ministry. He's the treasurer. If anybody was going to be above reproach, if anybody was going to be committed, if anybody was going to be the one, it, it should be him. So you can't tell by their education in the Bible. You can't tell by their position in the church. We cannot tell what darkness lies in the hearts of others. People are good at playing roles. People are good at putting on facades. We are good at playing roles. We are good at putting on facades. I want to make sure I'm not just out there saying, you know, them, they, them, they. We need to look at ourselves. And we are very good about playing roles and putting on facades. No one would have ever expected Judas to betray Jesus, especially for that relatively small amount of money. And yet here in the Gospels, we see it written in black and white. Now, again, why are they in Jerusalem right now? The Passover. And so the passage from Luke 22, verses 7 through 13, the second half of this passage we're looking at, is, is them getting the Passover set up. And we'll look at the, the Last Supper, the Passover dinner next week. But this is, the, the, again, that laying the groundwork, getting it set up. And this, this chunk of verses feels a lot like when Jesus was getting ready to enter Jerusalem. Uh, in Luke 19, verses 29 through 34, when he tells them, go into town, find this colt tied up on this street corner, talk to the guy, say the master needs it, he'll let you take it. That's what this feels like. Jesus tells Peter and John, go take care of the preparations for the Passover meal. Go find the guy with the water jug. Well, that would have been unusual in and of itself because it was the women that had the water jugs. The guys carried the skins of, of water. So go find the guy with the water jug. Follow him. Go into the house behind him. I don't know if the guy in front of him knew that he was going to follow him in. Go into the, follow him into the house and tell him, tell the master of the house, I need the upper room for us to have the Passover dinner. Now, this wasn't because Jesus liked ordering Peter around. This wasn't him just being lazy. You guys go do it. Or him being entitled. I'm God. I don't have to go do, deal with this stuff. You guys go deal with it. There was a reason for all the cloak and dagger. There was a, a reason for all the secrecy. And that reason was Judas and the chief priests. None of the disciples except for Peter and John knew where the Passover dinner would take place. And if Judas had known where it would be, then he could have set it up for the betrayal and Jesus' arrest to take place during or before the dinner. Jesus was not going to let that happen. This was where... This was the plan from the beginning. Jesus was going to have this last meal, this Passover meal specifically, with his close friends, with his family. He was going to give the last details that he was going to teach him. He was going to institute the sacrament of communion. He was going to do these things. And he needed, and what he needed to do, needed to, to have privacy and security for this meal. Uh, and th that we're going to be looking, looking at over the course of the next couple weeks. And so Judas couldn't know where it was going to be. The chief priest couldn't know where it was going to be. So Jesus sent Peter and John to take care of those preparations. Cloak and dagger couldn't just say, go to this guy's house, because then Judas would know. He said, go see this guy, go follow that guy, say the right password, go take care of it. At this point, all the pieces are now in place. The chief priests, 
Judas, Jesus, and the disciples. A Passover meal prepared, ready to go. The storm clouds are gathering. Bad things are going to take place over the next 24 hours or so in, in real time here. Satan and his work were coming to a pinnacle. He had been working since Adam and Eve to prevent the Son of Man from, from coming and from crushing him, trying to interrupt the, the, the line of, of, of Christ, to stop him from ever being born or to stop him from, from having his ministry, to stop him from being the Messiah and the Christ. And that invisible war was coming to its climax. It would reach its climax with Jesus crucified on the cross. When it seemed that Satan had won, that he had defeated the Son of God, Jesus was dead. The earth shook, the sun went dark. And then on Saturday, Jesus buried in the tomb. It continued to look like Satan had won. But these things did not just happen to God. They did not just happen to Jesus. They, they didn't just happen. God and Jesus did not react to what was happening and react poorly or wrongly or get trapped or get caught or, or have something happen that they weren't expecting. Acts 22, 23, and 24. Uh, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As Peter's talking to the, the crowds, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All that happened to Jesus was part of the divine and predetermined plan that was organized by the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the beginning of time. All of it was, was set up. All of it was, was, God was orchestrating all of it moving the pieces into place, showing his complete and total sovereignty, his complete and total, total control over all of creation. R.C. Sproul writes, In Judas's case, a heinous evil action was committed. But from a different perspective, the most glorious deed that ever was performed on our behalf was the betrayal of Jesus Christ. Because through that work, God orchestrated by God's sovereignty our salvation to come to pass. Judas was willing. He had his own intentions. His purpose was to strike Jesus. God's purpose was to redeem us through this very same act. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery for the same amount, not so coincidentally enough, that Judas took to betray Jesus. And, and Joseph had this to say in, chapter, in verse 20. It says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. We look at Judas. Jesus looks at Judas. And he doesn't say this. We don't have it recorded that he repeats that verse to him. But that's what he's doing. That's what ends up happening. What Judas, what Satan meant evil against Jesus God meant for good, to bring about that many people would find eternal life. God is in control. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when bad things are happening, even when things are at their darkest, the death of the Son of God on the cross 
all of our hope, all of our, our looking towards, all of, you think of what Peter and John and the disciples were going through that Friday and Saturday. There had never been a darker moment in history that, that Judas helped create that moment. But God was in control. He was sovereign. He is sovereign. And all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. If you are called according to his purpose, trust in him. Look to him. Have faith in him for all things. He will bring, bring through all these things. And the dawn is always brightest after the darkest of nights. Things are going to get dark. And for Jesus, we'll see that uh, happening over the next couple of weeks. And for us in our life, we're going to have dark times, dark moments. Every single one of you in this room can tell a story or many about those dark moments. Some more recent than others. They're going to happen. Jesus rises on the other side. He is in control of all of it. And he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And he has won the battle over Satan and the forces of darkness and sin. And those of you that can tell those stories of the darkness, you can tell the story of the light that came out the other side. What did God do through that? What testimony you have because of that? What joy there is that God was working that you might not be able to see at that moment. I'm not saying don't worry about those times. I'm not saying that don't, it, it's not going to be tough or that it's not going to be dark. It's going to be. But the light that shines on the other side is brighter than anything you would have known before the darkness. Jesus is in control of all of it. So when the darkness is coming, remember that light on the other side. Remember who is in control and remember that he is able and will use it for his glory. Use it for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We may not see it then. We may not see it now. Not, not everybody can see it after it happens. Job couldn't see it even after it happened to him. He died not knowing the light that, that God would use from what happened to him. But oftentimes we can afterwards look back and see this is what God is doing, has done, will do. This is the light on the other side. That light is Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. There are not words sufficient to share our thanks, our, our love, our appreciation. That though things get bad, things get dark, that you are there walking through us, with us, through all of it. And that you have a plan for it. We might not see it this life. We may, it may take till getting to the other side to see it. But Lord, you have shown us enough. You have promised us. And you have proven. Whatever we go through, you went through worse. And you came out the other side shining brighter than glory. So we thank you for that. Help us to, to take these, these opportunities in our life as things get dark. And as we come out of the darkness into the light to show others that same thing to minister to others that are going through those same problems and to share our testimony. This is what God has done. This is what he can do. He is in control. Jesus, just thank you and help us to, to remember, to trust in you through these times. Amen.
Thank you again for listening and joining us on our journey through God's Word. If you've listened this far and believe in our ministry or us as a family, please consider partnering with us. We would be honored to know that you are praying with and for us. If you feel compelled to give through financial support, information on how and where to give can be found at kcholenchik.com slash giving. Thank you and God bless.